welcome to season seven of the Equip Project podcast. It's great to be back recording after four months off, Jim, which is our longest ever gap between seasons, actually. Um, what have you been up to during the break? Well, that question always makes me feel guilty, Ollie. I I'm mean, sorry, Jim. I feel yeah, bad. I, I wish I could list out some great achievements that I have accomplished in the past few months. But the truth is I've been embroiled in the nuts and bolts of church life. I've read quite a few books, preached a lot of sermons, and I've done my best to help those in, in need of pastoral care. But uh, how do I put this? Unlike King Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, I can't point to something over the past four months and say, is this not great Babylon, which I have built? <laughs> That's probably for the best. <laughs> well, I, 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 I did build a small table in, in my kitchen. And, and to be fair, I did stand looking at it and thinking, is this not great Ikea, which I have built? <laughs> but anyway, that was the sum total of my engineering achievements. So anyway, I'm hugely relieved that you actually have something really significant to report because you've survived the most stressful event in any adult's life. You have moved house. We have indeed. Yeah, I do feel like more of an adult now, actually, Jim. It is a deeply stressful process. Um, there's still plenty of things we need to sort. One of the weird things is I didn't realize how important mirrors were. Um, we have like two mirrors in the house. So I don't know how I look today, Jim, but I I barely look in the mirror at the moment, which I don't know if that's a healthy thing or not. That is the most odd uh, response to the house moves. Yes, <laughs> I didn't think like every bathroom. We used to have one bathroom. We now have three bathrooms actually. And we have two mirrors in total in the house. So there's just a distinct lack of mirrors. That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, moving house is an absolute uh, calamitous experience. We went on holiday straight after moving house every time because <laughs> it was so stressful. <laughs> that is a why I actually might suggest booking a, a trip somewhere because I yeah we also have moved to Glengormley, which is one of the coldest places I think in Northern it Ireland. Is. Constantly is. windy. We got a bit of snow last week, and you know I think in Belfast it was about an inch. In Glengormley, it was about six foot of yes. snow. It has its own micro climate, which is is actually Arctic. Yeah. So no, these are the things you learn uh, as a fully-fledged adult. But anyhow, Jim, we are going to be talking about something uh, a little bit different this season. We have called the season Twitter Storms. Um, we've decided to discuss some of the controversies that have erupted within Christian circles in the past year. Um, I was a little bit surprised that you wanted to go down this road, Jim, um, because you're never keen to give a running commentary on on the big stories that Christians know about from Twitter. Uh, what's the thinking then? Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. In Romans 14, Paul asks a really direct question. He says, who are you to judge someone else's servant through their own master, servant, stand or fall? So we need to be really careful when passing judgment on other believers. I think the problem is that Twitter can make real-world conflicts seem like reality TV, you know, so we grab a bucket of popcorn, we watch the shenanigans at Mars Hill or Saddleback Church for our own entertainment, and that's really just a form of gossip, and, and we, we should have no time for that. So it's, it's important to say up front, Ollie, that we're not going to get into that business. Okay, Our aim is to use some of these controversies uh, to prepare ourselves for times when we will face similar situations. Okay, so the idea is that these episodes might act a bit like an early warning system then for churches in the UK and Ireland. Uh, most of our case studies will actually come from the US. But what we see in the US now could well be our experience five years from now. That's right. I mean, maybe the best place to start uh, is a conversation that I had many years ago uh, with a young guy, uh, and he asked me, um, what is the vision for, for, for your church? Um, where are we heading now? Uh, as you know, Ollie, I react to the V word um, because uh, there is a sense in which it can be a very positive and important thing. But very often when people ask that question, what they mean is, 
what bright new shiny thing is going to come across my my path and uh, <clears throat> i hope he didn't see me roll my eyes in irritation so anyway when i was uh, when i was thinking about this i came up with a, a mental picture a metaphor which I, I know you detest but i'm going to give it anyway um so imagine that you're the captain of a large ship Okay, and you're heading into a storm. You know, the computerized warning systems are all flashing red and the barometer is dropping like a stone. The skies have darkened, the swells already causing plumes of spray to come over the bow. But you know this is just the beginning. Soon you will be pointing the ship into these terrifying waves that will threaten to capsize the vessel or maybe even break it apart. And as you're thinking about all these things, some young sailor approaches and asks you, what is the vision for this boat trip? What is our goal? Well, I would say the answer is survival, that the the people on the boat will survive. Um, uh, And I know that's a little bit dramatic, but I do feel that church leaders should stop worrying so much about the next big, exciting, shiny thing, the next big venture, and instead ask themselves, how are they going to get their church members through um, these difficult times, uh, how will you give them the resilience so that they, you know, the whole church doesn't break up or, or people, as it were, drown when things get tough? Okay, so we can unpack that metaphor as this conversation progresses. In this episode, we want to think a bit about Tim Keller. Now, both of us hold Tim Keller in the highest regard, Jim. He's been a great blessing to me uh, as a young Christian. His ministry in New York started in the 1990s, and it obviously has been blessed by the Lord. Most of our listeners will know Tim Keller as an author. Um, Maybe they've read his book, The Meaning of Marriage, or his apologetic books, such as The Reason for God. Uh, He's earned the respect of non-Christians in New York, and he has a reputation for being intelligent, gracious, and respectful. In recent years, Keller's been battling cancer, and he's handled that trauma with real dignity and grace. And just last week, he tweeted out the news that his cancer uh, has returned uh, and he's uh, he, he's being treated further, having additional rounds of of chemotherapy, and um, he's definitely someone we should all keep in prayer in Amen. in that regard. Um, the strange thing about Keller is that in recent years he's come under fire from other Christians. Um, if you follow him on Twitter, you'll see pretty much every time he tweets, there's a barrage of hostile responses um, that proceed. His approach to ministry has been criticized openly by other well-known church leaders. And I guess to begin with, um, it's worth asking, Jim, why is this happening? Okay, I want to revert to my my metaphor of a ship sailing into a storm for a moment. Uh, There's an entire chapter in the book of Acts given over to the story of a shipwreck. Uh, It's brilliantly written. If if, if you want to read a chapter today, it's chapter 27. So Paul is being transported uh, as a prisoner to Rome. Uh, And it is Paul who saves the lives of everyone on board. He keeps their morale up. He stops the various groups from fighting each other. Um, at one point, the sailors try to escape in, in a lifeboat. Then the soldiers want to kill the prisoners to stop them escaping. But Paul shows real leadership by keeping everyone on board focused on the task of getting through the storm. Now, that story teaches us a really important lesson. Uh, so, obviously, we can't control the weather. But we can make sure that we don't turn on each other. There should be no fights on the boat And unfortunately, what we see in America at the moment is that Christians are starting to turn on each other. Now, that will happen on this side of the Atlantic as surely as the dawn will rise tomorrow. Usually, you see, when we think of persecution, we think of a a small band of brothers loyal to each other who stand shoulder to shoulder in the face of a hostile state. But churches are porous, um, so ideologies can leach into the minds of believers from outside. And so we find that 
the culture wars going on outside the church are played out inside the church as well. I don't need to tell you, Ollie, that the, the U.S. is polarized at the moment. You know, on the right, we have the Make America Great Again, the so-called MAGA Trump supporters. And then on the left, we have the progressives, the, the woke crowd, as they're sometimes called. But evangelicalism is fragmenting along those very same fault lines inside the church. So the first, I guess, serious point I want to make here is that the coming storm will create tensions between factions within each church or between churches. So we need to get ready for Christians turning on each other. The next question we need to think about is this, Jim. How have those tensions in the U.S. affected the arguments over Tim Keller's ministry? So Keller's approach to, to culture has been described as winsome third-wayism. And that phrase means two things. First, that he's winsome. That is, he seeks to persuade rather than to, rather than to antagonize. Uh, he tries to find as much common ground as he can with the surrounding culture. And the phrase third-wayism means that he tries to avoid picking a side in the culture war. If the political world is divided into Trump supporters and woke progressives, then Keller argues for a third way, one that is neither MAGA nor woke. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to suggest that the argument over Tim Keller operates at two levels. There's a surface level and a much deeper level. Um, at the surface level, more right-wing Christians accuse him of sitting on the fence on important social issues. So take abortion, for example. Uh, many Christians think that the abortion issue is so important that pastors should stand up in their pulpits and tell their congregation to vote Republican and not vote Democrat. Now, Tim Keller's views on abortions are completely orthodox and he's, he's unambiguously pro-life. But he won't pick a side in the realm of politics. And that has caused a lot of Christian nationalists to accuse him of being woke. Yeah, so Keller believes that we should engage the culture by evangelizing it. Uh, he views everything through the lens of evangelism. But there are voices on the right who say that Christians should speak with a prophetic voice. In other words, they should address political leaders in the way Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos address the kings of Israel. So it might be helpful then to, to contrast Keller's approach with the one taken by John MacArthur. MacArthur is a pastor of a huge church in California, and he's known for being extremely forthright. In 2022, he wrote an open letter to the governor of California, a really uh, woke progressive called Gavin Newsom. And I'm going to quote a couple of paragraphs from MacArthur's letter. He said, Sir, Almighty God says in his word, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 14.34. Scripture also teaches that it is the chief duty of any civic leader to reward those who do well and to punish evildoers, Romans 13, 1-7. You have not only failed in that responsibility, you routinely turn it on its head, rewarding evildoers and punishing the righteous. Later on in the letter, he says, in mid-September, you revealed to the entire nation how thoroughly rebellious against God you are when you sponsored billboards across America promoting the slaughter of children whom he creates in the womb. You further compounded the wickedness of that murderous campaign with a reprehensible act of gross blasphemy, quoting the very words of Jesus from Mark 12:31, as if you could somehow twist his meaning and arrogate his name in favor of butchering unborn infants. You used the name and the words of Christ to promote the credo of Molech. It would be hard to imagine a greater sacrilege. Your contrast between Keller and MacArthur, it raises a really interesting question. Uh, is our only responsibility in society to evangelize? Or should we act as a prophetic voice? 
and I, and I have to confess only to a degree of ambivalence here. On the one hand, we need to remember that Isaiah and Jeremiah lived within a theocracy. Nearly all their fierce criticisms of the kings were, were based on the fact that the kings had violated Israel's covenant with God. Now, when we get to the New Testament, Paul accepts that we live in a pluralistic society. And so he calls on us to pray for politicians that we might live peaceful and godly lives. Um, so I'm not convinced that contemporary church leaders are called to play the role of Old Testament prophets. But it surely can't be that simple, because on the other side of the coin, we are called to stand for truth. For example, I often feel guilty that Christian churches in Northern Ireland were not far more proactive in making a stand against abortion legislation. I mean, I applaud PCI's work in the public square on the euthanasia bill uh, that was proposed in the Irish Parliament. So how do you resolve that tension then? Is our job just to evangelise or is it to denounce wrongdoing publicly? Where do we land on that? Yeah, not sure I have a great answer to that question. It probably boils down to a question of tactics. and um, We need to ask, even if we go with the prophetic voice concept, how exactly do we speak? I mean, should it be open letters like MacArthur's? I mean, I'm old enough to remember Dr. Ian Paisley publicly handing Margaret Thatcher over to Satan in a prayer he made from his pulpit. He issued a curse on her. I mean, uh, I sometimes think Christians who are attracted to tactics like that are <laughs> a bit like um, Millwall football supporters. You know, Millwall football supporters are famous for singing, we're Millwall, everybody hates us, we don't care. <laughs> one, of, one of my closest friends is a Millwall fan, actually. He, uh, lo- he absolutely loves that tune. Okay. Uh, well, uh, we love him. We just want to tell him that. Um, but so, so, so the, the point is, if if you want to have any impact on politics, uh, you need to make that impact before the politician makes a public statement. Once a politician goes public, the issue is nearly always carved in stone. So I would say if there is to be a prophetic voice, it needs to be heard by civil servants who draft legislation, by MPs who are considering new policies, and by opinion formers, maybe over dinner. And and when we do have to respond to ungodly laws that have been made, I, I would think somebody like Simon Calvert from the Christian Institute is an excellent role model. I mean, he speaks truth, but he does so in a rational, courteous way that works on television. You said a few minutes ago that the argument over Tim Keller's approach to ministry operates at two levels. At the surface level, there is the accusation that he's gone woke because he tries to stay above the polarized politics of the U.S., but there's a deeper argument over strategy going on as well, isn't there? Yeah. Before I talk about that, Ollie, I want to put something on record here. The charge that Keller has gone woke is completely false. It is a scurrilous thing to say. Um, but now when we turn to this deeper argument, um, I do wonder if his approach to ministry is going to have to evolve or we're going to have to add to it. Um, so to explain the deeper problem, I want to recount an argument made by a Christian thinker called uh, Aaron Rand. He's quite well known for a paper he wrote called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. Yeah, that that title sounds similar to the episode we did a, a couple of years ago on Equip uh, around the future of evangelicalism. Is it is it similar? Yeah, there are some common themes, but I have to admit, Ren's analysis is much better than ours. <laughs> he, he divides recent history into three phases. Uh, stage one begins in the 1960s and runs right up to 1994. Stage two runs from 1994 to 2014. And, of course, we are currently sitting in stage three. And he defines these three stages by asking, how does society view Christianity? In stage one, Wren says, society has a positive view of Christianity. So it worked well in a job interview if you mentioned that you were, you know, a church-going family man. Then in stage two, society had a neutral view of Christianity. 
people could take it or leave it. But in stage three in 2014, which is the year that's called the Great Awakening, society began to regard Christianity as a negative thing. In Christian terms, stage one saw the rise of the moral majority with Jerry Folwell and Pat Robertson. This stage produced what we now call the culture warriors, the Christian nationalists who support Donald Trump. Yeah, Aaron Wren makes the brilliant point that all those guys had rural constituencies, so they had no interest in cities or even in what was going on in the suburbs. But it's at this time we also get the rise of the seeker-friendly churches. First there was Willow Creek, then came Rick Warren and his Saddleback Church, and most of the megachurches grew out of the seeker-friendly movement. That was largely a change in the suburbs of America. That's right. Then in the mid-1990s, we get the rise of the cities. New York was rejuvenated. Uh, It became this financial powerhouse. The great cities of America started to hum once again. The centre of gravity of culture became urban and elitist. And it is in that cultural moment that Tim Keller begins his ministry in Redeemer Central in New York. And Keller wasn't a Christian warrior. He he didn't really seek to to build a seeker-friendly church either. His approach was cultural engagement. That's right. He embraced the culture of the city. His congregation liked artisan bread and poured over coffee. They went to the opera and read New York Times bestsellers. But here we come to Aaron Wren's crucial argument. Keller's success all took place in stage two at a time when society's stance toward Christianity was neutral. Jim, we're going to have to take a brief pause here because you said poured over coffee. And it's pour over coffee. It's pour over coffee. See, if, I, if I listen to you <laughs> with more attention, I get that right. <laughs> it's fine, Jim, but I just, you know, our listeners need to be reassured that I am working on you in that regard. Yeah, I, 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 I can only repent in sackcloth and ashes <laughs> for making such a heinous I'm sorry, mistake. I'm, I'm, sorry to, I'm sorry to halt the podcast over that. Um, the deep argument here over Keller, though, Jim, getting back to, to serious topics, is, is whether or not his cultural engagement approach will work now that society has gone negative in its view of Christianity. Exactly. Think, think of the three groups we've identified within evangelicalism so far. The rural cultural warriors, the suburban seeker-friendly Christians, and the urban cultural engagers like Keller. Which groups get into the most trouble because society has gone negative on Christianity? Well, it's obvious. It's the cultural engagers. It's, it's city churches. To be blunt, the Christian warriors can simply shrug their shoulders and say, we told you so. The world has always hated us. We're Millwall. Everybody hates us. <laughs> but we don't care. The seeker-friendly churches, well, they never really engaged in the realm of ideas anyway. You know, they relied on warm friendliness and lots of family barbecues. It's the city churches who are going to lose most now that society's posture towards Christianity has grown negative. Tim Keller's reputation in wider society also demonstrates your point, Jim. So the New York Times has written a number of respectful, even complimentary profiles on him, and rightly so, of course. But what are the chances of any other Christian leader being treated with such respect nowadays? Well, those days are gone. Um, So so I think our view of Tim Keller could be summarized like this. He he is a good and godly man who will go home to a vast eternal reward. We honor him and we're grateful for him. The accusation that he has gone woke is risible. However, I I would tentatively disagree with his idea that winsome third-wayism is still an effective strategy uh, now that we live in a world in which society's stance towards Christianity has gone negative. To to maybe put that in in biblical terms, uh, we might say that Keller's approach works in Athens. 
But we're no longer in Athens. We're in Ephesus. If you remember, in Athens, Paul had a rational dialogue with non-Christians. But in Ephesus, he was dragged by a mob into, into the amphitheater. The crowd howled in protest for two hours, even though many of the people had no idea why they were there. We live in a world like that. It's ruled by the Twitter mob. So I think we need to evolve our thinking and prepare to live and witness in a negative world. I guess this is perhaps one of those moments, Jim, when analyzing the problem is reasonably straightforward, but building the solution is actually really difficult. Um, If it's true that this winsome third wayism won't work in our world as it is, I guess the question is, what do we do instead? The short answer to that question is that I don't know yet. We're going to have to think really hard. We're going to have to pray. We're going to have to talk together before an effective approach emerges. But if you put a gun to my head and ask me for an initial answer, I'd tentatively suggest a dual-track approach. Okay, In other words, I think there are two things we need to do in parallel. So what we might call the first track is defensive, and the second track is, is more on, on the offensive. So we'll start by playing defense. There was a book published a year or so ago called The Benedict Option. You'll recall Benedict, Ollie, from our church history series. He led the construction of a whole set of monastic communities in the Middle Ages. I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we go off and build ourselves a monastery. Um, the equipped monastery would be quite a good brand, actually, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Yes. Can you imagine? <laughs> Pour over coffee on tap. <laughs> yes, we could grow asparagus, I suppose. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the, the, the idea of a monastery isn't a bad metaphor for the sort of community that churches need to build. So in a world where teenagers have so many authoritative voices in their heads coming from social media, we need to provide them with a relationally rich, enjoyable lifestyle hub, for for, for want of a better term. Unless churches become a relationally rich environment, a true family which lives in a warm spiritual home, then people are going to uh, start to fall overboard from the ship. That is a particularly challenging issue for city churches. But we need to meet that challenge. Uh, as you well know, Ollie, I, I loathe um, the term safe space, but I, I, at the moment I can't think of a better term to describe what we need to become. I mean, imagine a church where young women aren't objectified or embarrassed to be women, but they become embedded in a loving community where they live as spiritual daughters and younger sisters. They can switch off their phones and live free from anxiety because they know that they're loved and valued. Imagine a world where young men can play football together and laugh at ridiculous jokes, but also have deep, authentic conversations with older role models, men with godly character who can train them in how to live. Imagine a world in which single people can live radiant lives embedded within a loving spiritual family. And think of a world where older believers feel loved and valuable. So that's that's uh, my attempt at um, to describing what a, a sort of a monastery might look like. Okay, So the first track is to build a relationally rich community of believers and then use God's word to strengthen their understanding of the spiritual battle being fought outside. And what about the the second track you mentioned? Well, I would call this strategy um, to bring light into the city. Um, The real risk with my my first track uh, is that it encourages churches to withdraw, to pull up the drawbridge and await the return of Christ. The question is, how do we act as a light in the city? How do we bring light into the city? And here, I wonder if the real task is to equip individual believers to stand for truth in the workplace uh, and at schools and and on college. So, I mean, take an example. Consider a school teacher who's instructed how to react when a child announces a new gender or sexualized identity. The teacher is told that they must publicly affirm the child's new identity. Well, we need to equip teachers how to handle that specific situation. 
Think of a businessman sitting around a boardroom table. During the introductions, every person uh, gives their preferred pronouns. What should he do? We need to equip people how to handle that real-life challenge and how to bring light into their their work lives. But at a deeper level, um, we need to teach believers how to handle injustice, how to handle marginalization. Um, this is really maybe the heart of, of what, what I, I've been thinking about, Ollie, in this whole episode. It seems to me that the Apostle Peter's argument in his first epistle is that in a pagan society, the only really effective way to evangelize is to handle injustice well. Because that arouses the non-Christian's curiosity. And I guess that is the new ingredient that we need to add to Tim Keller's approach to ministry. Yes, we remain winsome defenders of the truth. But we react to the inevitable injustice that a negative society will impose upon us And we react in a Christ-like way because it is our reaction to injustice that will bring pagans to a knowledge of the truth. So anyway, those are some initial thoughts on life in a negative world. A dual-track strategy, build a relationally rich community of believers, and equip believers to bring light into their workplaces. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be back recording again. Uh, Do join us again next week as we consider the topic authority and abuse in the church. Uh, Until then, have a great week.